Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a repeated founder joining us. You know, we're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, also exiting, you know, his last company, uh, which, uh, you know, has all types of really exciting, you know, and war stories that we're going to be talking about. Uh, but without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Mike Malco. Welcome to the show. Hey there. Pleasure being here. So originally born and raised in Germany. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Uh, life growing up in Germany was amazing. I was mostly focused on doing sports when I grew up. I played like Olympic handball in like one of the best youth teams in Germany. That was my main focus for a long while. Then I injured myself. So I needed a new obsession. Then I got into competitive video games. And then my next com like obsession afterwards was startups because I just noticed that this would be something that I could do my whole life. And yeah, but I had a great childhood. I loved growing up there. But there's also a reason that I moved to the U.S. because I just feel that things are moving much faster in the U.S. compared to Germany. Now, as you were talking about, you know, you, you played competitively handball. So uh, how do you think that that has fueled your drive and, and you being an entrepreneur later on? I mean, how, how do you think that that thing intensity and, and, and ambition, you know, has been fueled by that leadership and that competitiveness that you experienced growing up? Yeah, I think there's like three major points to that. Number one, I was just very used to being disciplined. We had training six times a week. I did that for like nine years straight. I didn't think about it twice until like 10 years later. So this being disciplined, sticking to the plan and just like grinding, that was number one skill I think that I learned. Number two, teamwork, because I played a team sport. It was very important to play the role that was most pertinent for the team to be successful. And sometimes it was me scoring the goals. Sometimes it was me like playing like more of a background role and trying to make other people successful. So I think like trying to understand what the best thing for a team is was something that I learned early. And then the last thing is um, having like some kind of competitive sense, right? You want to win the game, but sometimes you lose the game, but then the goal is to win the next game. And this is how I think about entrepreneurship as well, right? You can't win every single time. You actually often lose more than you win, but it's all about coming back, all about improving your chances of winning the next time. That's, that's how I think about it, at least. So eventually you end up coming to the U.S. So how was that, uh, you know, of a culture shock? You know, because obviously, <laughs> yeah. you know, in the U.S., obviously the land of opportunities, startups left and right, you know, obviously... Now in Europe, you know, things have been taken off quite a little bit more, you know, when it comes to startups. But, uh, you know, it has taken some time and still is not as advanced as what you would see, you know, here in the U.S., the landscape. So how was, how was that, uh, that experience of coming here? Yeah, I, I had two very different experiences. So the very first time that I ever was in the U.S. was for an internship at a Silicon Valley startup. It was in the middle of Palo Alto. I didn't do anything during that summer other than just work really hard for that startup. And then the next experience was like nine months later or so, I studied abroad in Los Angeles. And then I, I saw how much fun people can have while they are in college because college in Germany works very different. It's way more academic, way more focused on at least the college that I went to. Uh, but yeah, so like that's also where I met one of my co-founders who is also German, but who studied in LA at the same time as me. And we just noticed that both of us really like startups. 
But at the same time, we like the US startup school a bit more than the German startup school, which is like a bit more technical. It's very close to like the YC cradle of talking to your users, building very fast, iterating. And uh, the German startup school is a bit more like building a business plan first and then like building once you have a business plan figured out, which is not usually how I think about it. So yeah, I think the, the culture shock was more exhilarating than actually shocking. And we, we tried to move over pretty soon afterwards. We had a brief stint uh, in Europe. But then once we started our first actual company, we basically moved over the second day after we decided what we wanted to build. So now working at Stripe was pivotal. You know, it was like the experience of really having that exposure into a rocket ship. No, I mean, one of the most valued companies right now and, and incredible what, what they've done. But how was that experience of, of seeing that, of working there, and then also on helping them with the expansion to in, East, in Eastern Europe? Yeah, Stripe was a very interesting experience because I basically I knew straight out of college I wanted to build a company, but I didn't really know what I wanted to build. So the, the head of Northern Europe, like back then of Stripe, basically tried to like recruit me a couple times. And then right before I graduated, he told me the following thing that was in hindsight very helpful. He was like, okay, Mike, what you should do is you should join Stripe and you get paid very well for working with startups while you can think about what you should build. And then once you want to build a company, you just leave Stripe. And uh, so I did exactly that. I, I, joined the, I joined the Stripe team when there were like, I think like 950 people at Stripe or something that was back in 2018. And I was mostly uh, in Berlin, but I also had like stints in San Francisco and Dublin. And my role was basically to build the startup partnerships in the German speaking market and help with the Eastern Europe expansion. But the cool thing was that like, I, I was never planning on being there for a couple of years. And it was like pre-planned. So my whole role was basically to build this up and then give it to someone else who would join afterwards. And the cool thing about Stripe was, A, the density of smart people. I don't think I've ever seen any company from outside or inside so many smart people in one place. It, it was amazing. Like I had so many people that I could talk about so many different things with. And the other thing was they had a very interesting internal structure where very, like many things were very transparent. I could just read about a decision that was taken in like the Singapore team of whether or not a specific deal should be pursued because I had access to it. So basically what I did after I worked like my actual like day job at Stripe, I was just reading and absorbing all the information that I could find and just try to find patterns that I would find interesting. So the time at Stripe definitely helped me a lot in learning what a great company should look like. And we try to emulate some of those things at Fashion. So then let's talk about that moment where you realize that, uh, hey, I think it's uh, it's my time to, to go at it. You know, like how did that the incubation process and to the moment where you're like, I got to do this thing? <laughs> yeah, we, we like my I have two co-founders now and one of my co-founders and I were looking at like different ideas, different problems that we wanted to solve for a little bit. And we're looking into three different spaces, mostly one was financial empowerment. The other two were gaming and mental health back in the day. And then what happened was we, we found this great accelerator that was based in San Francisco that was specifically for immigrant founders. And it was founded by a couple of Y Combinator alumni. And uh, the whole idea was like very intriguing to us. The idea was 
you can go there. You have a very early stage. We will help you get it off the ground. And they had some very cool perks. They had the perk that they would connect you to a visa lawyer that would help with the U.S. visa, which is a big thing for every single immigrant founder. And one of the biggest blockers for people from other countries to move to the U.S. and build the business there. And then it also offered free housing for the first three months that we would be in the Bay Area. So we applied to this one. We didn't think we would get in because we were super early with our idea, but they, they just really liked us as a team. So they said, well, um, you can come over. Um, it starts next week. And then the problem was we were still living in Berlin at the time. Like we had family, friends, like both of us had like girlfriends back there. Uh, and But then we just decided, okay, we moved to San Francisco. We booked the flight ticket and then we flew to San Francisco without having much for the business. And then just on the way to San Francisco, got our third co-founder on board, which also like a very cool story. So basically we're still studying in college back then. And we told him, Costa, we have to chat. And then we told him we're flying to San Francisco next week. We're building a company. Do you want to join? And it took him like less than a minute. He's like, okay, I'm dropping out. I'm dropping out of school. And uh, to this day, he joined us like five or six days late. So we sometimes joke that he's like not a real co-founder, even though it's not even the same company anymore. But yeah, like we, we had been the three of us from the beginning. And we lived in Oakland, uh, free housing at first, and then just started grinding and trying to, trying to build a, a fintech for the US, a student financing platform. And why were the three of you the three musketeers? You know, like how were you guys like really blending, you know, into each other's skill set so nicely that you thought the three of you, you know, could really make a good co-founding team? Yes, uh, I think part of it was just the skills that we each had. Like, um, like, the th like for example, like one of my co-founders, David, he's a, a, a superb designer. He has like a great design sense. But he's also a very good salesperson. Like he, he can basically sell anything and has like sold many different things before. Uh, Costa is a very, like a very technical, like just, just a great engineer. Like I, I'm also like, I'm a self-taught engineer. I can build things, but he's just on a level that is un, like unmatched to most of the people that I've met so far. So he was just like supposed to be the technical lead and CTO from the beginning. And uh, then I'm very good at building long-term relationships. I'm, I'm good at doing go-to-market stuff. It's not like I can do sales, but also like more like product-led growth things and content and marketing around that. So we had like a very complementary skill set, um, both on the analytical side and on the like more softer side. But one of the most important things beyond that was just that we had a very similar idea of how we wanted to build a company and like similar incentives. We all wanted to build a massive enduring company. And we just liked and trusted each other. David and Costa had worked a lot together while they were in college. David and I had built a couple of side projects together. Costa and I, I met him through David. So basically, very good friendships and a basis of trust and then very complementary skills. That was basically the, the recipe. And what ended up being the business model of Blair? How were you guys making money there? <laughs> yeah. So basically, to describe the business model that we started with, the whole idea was that the US student financing system is very flawed. And lots of young people are being, I don't want to say tricked, but like nudged into long term debt agreements that are not necessarily good for them. So our idea was actually born out of something that we've seen work in Germany, where we use something called income share agreements, where a student would only repay the money they got if they earn more than a certain income threshold. So let's say if you earn less than $60,000, you don't repay anything in that given year. So we wanted to align the incentives between the financer, the student, and also the university. 
And we started doing that direct to consumer where we raised money at first from high net worth individuals, and then we gave it to students after them giving us some information about themselves. We underwrote them based on like our algorithm and then said, hey, we can give you this much money if you pledge this percentage of your income for a certain time after you graduate. And that went reasonably well. It was in 2019 until COVID hit early 2020. Because the problem was we, we basically were relying on raising debt to then invest it into students. But then COVID hit. And because COVID hit, we couldn't raise any debt anymore at first because it, like all the financial markets didn't really know what was going on, especially consumer. There was a lot of worry. So we actually shifted the business model into not offering it to, uh, to students, but offering the technology that we build to enable schools to offer these income share agreements. So we, we rebuilt the platform a little over a couple of months, then started selling this as a SaaS product to schools directly. And if I say schools, I mean, on the one hand, universities, just like traditional universities that, that you might know, but also some other educational institutions like boot camps where you can learn how to code or how to become like a salesperson in a couple of months, or uh, blue color educational institutions where you can become a plumber or an HVAC technician. And so we had the SaaS product and sold that like with a monthly fee and then a per student fee. Um, and then afterwards, we noticed very quickly that some of these schools were reliant on additional capital inflows. So we raised a pretty big debt fund that we then used to purchase some of the agreements from the schools. And the business model there was that we got some of the margin basically of the financing. So the school got some of it, we got some of it, but we also had this, this risk sharing there with the students, uh, sorry, with the schools, that the school got some of the money up front, and then they would earn some of the money once the students start, student started repaying. Um, so that was the basic business model. There were a couple of nuances to it. Like we basically grouped the students so that we could share the risk a bit more. And yeah, it was it was a bit of like financial um, like structuring and then like getting some basis points of that. And then also traditional SaaS fees were from people using our software. Now, what about going into Y Combinator and, and then also the experience of raising money? Because, I mean, coming here to the U.S., building a company and then getting investment and, uh, and also being part of the best accelerator. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, like we, we got into YC pretty early in the journey of, of the first company. Like after a couple of months, we did the Immigrant Accelerator that I talked about earlier. And then we got into YC the same summer. It was life changing in many ways. It definitely changed the trajectory of the company. It also made it much easier for us to stay in the country because getting a, a visa, uh, if you have YC, is much easier than if you don't have it. And then I needed to get very good at fundraising very quickly because I didn't only need to raise equity, um, which we needed some of, but not that much because we were always believing in achieving a lot with a small team. But I also needed to raise the debt, right, that we could then first invest in the students and then later used to purchase the agreements off of the schools. So we started by going to some high net worth individuals that we had some kind of contact with. Um, and then the, the early investors were either people we knew or people we were introduced to. So I, I still remember like our first four investors in Blair were two people that just um, like were building a very massive company in Germany that we met a couple of months early and that were like almost friends of ours. And then two of the other first investors were um, a, like a childhood friend of my brother whose dad had sold his like last company, basically not a tech company, but like we knew them. They knew that we were like very hardworking people. 
And then the, the last one was one of my former college professors at USC. And I didn't even want him to invest. I, I talked to him. I wanted some advice. And he was so excited about it that he invested and his personal wealth manager also invested. So these were the four first four people that ever gave us money. And then from there, we basically like went into like a more, a better cadence and a better structured process of actually raising money. And I needed to become very good at first getting money from high net worth individuals, then getting money from family offices, and at some point getting money from big Wall Street firms like asset managers, hedge funds, and these kinds of people. So it was a learning journey like the whole time. And then one of the issues was, you're probably very aware of that, raising equity is very different than raising debt. So I, I needed to become good at raising equity, but I also needed to become proficient at raising debt, which is a whole different beast because the incentives for the debt investors are very different than the incentives for the equity investors. Equity investors, at least in the early stage startup scene, they invest for almost unlimited upside or at least like very high upside. So they, they don't get fired if they make a bad investment. But the debt investors get fired if they make a bad investment. So their whole risk profile is different. And they can also usually only make a limited upside, right? They get their certain interest rate or their, their like ARR target, depending on how you structure it. But they don't make more than that. So every single deal needs to at least repay the money and then have like a, a safety buffer on top of that. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And now in that case, you know, like how much capital did you guys raise in, in total, you know, on the equity side and then also on the debt side for the business? Yeah, on the equity side, we, we raised like a bit more than $7 million. Um, we, we didn't even like spent most of it until we sold the assets of the company. We, we always try to be very lean on the side of the team. In hindsight, we should have hired a bit more, I think, because we like when we when we raised the $7 million equity round, we also very briefly before that raised our first $100 million debt fund. And we were seven people at the company at that time. And no one had any like finance background. It was just like me raising the money. Everyone else was mostly working on the product. So yeah, um, in terms of the like, 
asset side um, for the students, we raised like hundreds of millions, had it in like different fund structures and invested it in like students and schools all over the country, uh, which also comes with like some additional like requirements of like we had to go through an audit for the first time. And the problem is you can't talk to most other companies in the early stages if you're a startup about going through an audit because almost no one has to go through an audit. But if you want to raise like a very, like a nine digit amount from like an asset manager, then they want to audit your financials and they want to audit some other processes. So we were six people, seven people, I don't remember, six or seven at the company had to go through this massive audit. And the auditor had never worked with a company that had less than a thousand employees. So they were very confused about what, what they were going to do. But we, we made it work. We made it work. Now, as Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And yes. it sounds like uh, COVID was the, uh, you know, a, a punch, you know, for at least for the way that you guys were planning and how you guys, you know, needed to shift things. So how do you think, uh, I mean, how did, you know, not how you think because you experienced it. How did COVID change things for you guys? Yeah, COVID changed things in a couple of ways. Like number one, as I like alluded to earlier, just changed the way the debt market worked. So we couldn't raise any money for at least a couple of months because like everything was just that. We had we had two term sheets on the table already, but they were withdrawn because of COVID. So like we had to change our whole plan. Uh, and then the other problem that was a bit more unique to us was um, we needed to renew our visa, but all the consulates were closed. So basically Trump uh, back then, like Trump was president back then, and he announced a like travel ban for like foreign nationals. And he announced it on the day that we wanted to fly back to the U.S. So we had the decision to make, like, do we fly into the U.S. now? Um, or do we, like, stay in Germany uh, and then, like, wait out, the, like, the renewal of the visa? Because it would have basically ended while we were still in the U.S. So, like, there was a lot of, like, visa shenanigans that were going on. So then we decided we stay in Germany for now. But the problem is all of our customers were in the U.S., right? And also the investors that we raised money from were in the U.S. So basically what I had to do was, I had to change my sleep rhythm. And so for nine months, nine, 10 months, I was up until 8 a.m. German time every single day. And I slept until 4 p.m. every single day German time because I only had to talk to all the investors and everyone else like during the night. So I didn't see a single ray of sunlight probably for like almost a year. And that, that was like a, a bit of a stressful time. But ultimately what I did, like I raised the first $100 million debt fund from my childhood living room. And the problem with my childhood living room was, number one, my little brother was still living back at home because I like moved like in with my parents because I thought that's the like best environment I can have during COVID. But uh, my, my little brother was sleeping next door. So I like I bought this like audio insulating wall that I could between it so that it could like be loud at 3 a.m. in the night and not disturb him. And the other funny thing was I, I was talking to all these like Wall Street funds, like people in their 40s, 50s, very tenured people. And I had like my childhood bed, like in my background. So I bought this like, like thing that I could put in the background so people wouldn't see like the bright green color of my living of my of my bedroom. And so basically, what I did was I raised the first hundred million dollar debt fund that we raised from the same desk that I did my eighth grade math homework at, which is a pretty cool story to tell now. But it was it was very uh, frustrating at the time. Um, but yeah, I think we got through it. So then, so then, what happened next with uh, you know carving things out and 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 going for an exit here? Yes. So basically, we were growing very very well in 2021. Like we closed a school a week. Like things were going like 
very well. We invested the money that we made and like the, the students were paying back, which was great. So everything was going well. And then the regulation. Uh, so basically, we were in a, in a slightly unregulated market where there was a law that had been introduced to the Senate and the House in the US, but it, it hadn't passed yet. And the problem was then when it ultimately didn't pass, the states started to regulate the like submarket that we were in these like income share agreements. They they started regulating it, and then California started, and then it went nationally more or less. And basically, what most states said is you can't offer this. And the reasoning that they said there was like multitude of reasonings, but I can give you one. Like one state, for example, said a student needs to know in advance how much they're paying for their education. Which makes sense to some degree because there were some like fraudulent schools that were charging school like students more afterwards. But in our case, we had a maximum amount. Let's say the maximum amount was like twenty thousand dollars, and the only thing that could happen is that the student paid less. But at the same time, the regulators didn't want us to offer that. They said, "Oh no, you have to tell them they have to pay twenty thousand dollars. You can't have them pay less because that's against the law." So we are fighting all these stupid rules everywhere, and then we were also starting to get sued. Not us necessarily, but also the schools that we were working with, because the traditional student loan lobby put a lot of money into lobbying against the agreements that we had, because I think they thought that they just saw a threat versus like the traditional student loans, because we just had a better product for the student. And it's not only us, there were like other people, uh, other companies in the space as well. And so basically, there were lawsuits throwing around everywhere in 2022. Some of them hit us as well. Ultimately, we won all the lawsuits, like, but it, it, it just took a lot of time. And then the growth just stopped in the market because everyone was afraid of regulators or like other companies suing them. And the, the, the student loan lobby also, they, they funded a couple of NGOs whose sole purpose it was to start suing people who use these kinds of agreements. So basically, it was like a, a, a learning experience for us to how lobbying and the legal system worked in the US and we were bleeding money on like legal costs and couldn't really grow that much anymore. So basically what we said was we have very, we have like great assets. We have like customer relationships, we have great tech and we have this debt fund that's actually returning a lot of money. So uh, we carved up the assets into three separate um, like asset bundles and then we sold them to three separate entities. And it wasn't the result that we wanted. Like we wanted to build a massive enduring company, right? We wanted to like IPO this. We wanted to have millions of students all over the country. But ultimately, sometimes you can't change regulation. You want to change like the way you want to change it. I literally talked to some uh, House House members, some Senate um, members, some some state Senate, some like federal Senate, and like we talked about it a couple times. But ultimately, like the, the regulation just went the other way. So yeah, we we basically sold the assets and then pretty quickly after started a new company. So then what's what's happening now with Fastgen? You know, how did you guys, you know, go about, hey, let's let's go out and out with Fastgen? <laughs> yeah, so we knew that we wanted to build another company. Like that, that that was never a question. We also knew that we wanted to build it with the same co-founders. Like we never like we never even once discussed would we change the team, would we do anything there? The only question was what are we building next? And we looked at a couple of different ideas that we found interesting and had like a very, fairly dedicated process for going through them. First thing we did was like do a like base level analysis of the problem, answer a couple of questions that we wanted to figure out, like what's the founder market fit? Is this a growing market? A couple of other things. And then if they didn't, if the idea or problem didn't pass that stage, we would kick it. 
And then if it passed the stage, then we would, would, would do pro, uh, prospective user interviews. So we talked to people who we thought might have that problem and then try to figure out, do they even have that problem? And then Fastgen itself was born out of something that we experienced at Blair, the, the last company, right? So basically what we found was that there were great ways of like quickly building front ends with great local tools. We were, for example, very big fans of Webflow for a long time, but we couldn't really find anything that makes it much faster in the backend. But we thought it's technologically very possible to build, even though you have to build in a certain way to actually be helpful. So what we did was like talk to some people and like try to figure out whether they were running into the same problems. And then very quickly, we noticed that other people were having the same problem. And we thought we have a good uh, founder market fit because we both can like build great products and then also think about how to market them and how to bring them to market. Uh, so we started building. And then we did not only decide to do it with the same co-founders, we also decided that we wanted to rehire the first four software engineers that we hired at, at Blair as well. So basically, we decided it uh, around like right before Christmas 2022. And um, so basically what I had to do over Christmas until like early January was raise some money so that we could like start paying the engineers that would start like basically January 1st. So I raised a little bit of money over Christmas. Um, we also got into YC again. Um, so we did the winter batch of uh, YC earlier in 2023 and then raised some additional money afterwards. But yeah, so basically it's, it's very much the same crew, same co-founding team same early engineering team, even many of our investors are the same. So a, a good chunk of our cap table, like right now with fashion, had invested in our last company as well. And this is how we want to do business in general. We like to find people we enjoy spending time with that we think are great people at what they're doing and that we also just personally like, and then build long-term relationships with them. That's what we want to do with our employees. That's what we want to do with our investors. Now, talking about investors here, you know, like the um, vision is a big one. So um, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of fashion is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, so we are a low-code backend. So the idea is that you can use a visual drag-and-drop environment to build the business logic of your backend, your APIs, your cron drops. We have a database for you to store data as well. So what we want to do is to build the best low-code backend. So basically what Webflow has achieved for the front-end, we want to do the same thing for the backend. So if I go to bed and wake up with a mission achieved tomorrow, then we have millions of people building their products with FastGen as being like one core tool in their tech stack. And the idea is like from the very beginning, one of the problems that we saw in the low-code, no-code space was that some of the tools are just closed systems. They want to do everything. But that's not how software and engineering usually works. You usually have multiple tools that you combine into your tech stack, right? So what we want to do is be the prime solution for people to build backends with a low-code stack. And that's what we're working towards. Now, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine mm -hmm. and I bring you back in time. Yes. Back in time to that moment where, you know, you were perhaps thinking about starting a company, you were getting on a plane, you know, on your way to San Francisco. And let's say you were able to sit down next to that younger self, you know, that is flying across the ocean, the Atlantic. And you're able to give that younger self at that point 
one piece of advice before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? I, I'll cheat and I'll give myself two pieces of advice. <laughs> so piece of advice number one is like it requires some context. So basically, in the early days of the last company, we we were still like reasonably broke, especially because San Francisco is super expensive, right? So we thought it was a good idea of me and one of my co-founders of not only sharing a room, but like a literal like bed in the early days. So like for nine months, our living room was our office. I shared a bed with one of my co-founders. And then the other room was our uh, CTO, the third co-founder, and our first engineering hire who knew each other very well as well. But basically, we lived in the same place, worked in the same place, and even slept in the same bed, which is a great story and it shows grit. But in hindsight, it was very stupid because we had already raised some money. We could have probably afforded our own room. And it was like very severely impacting like my sleep and just my overall stress level. So I think we would have done actually much better by just like selling, like paying each other like a little bit of salary. We literally paid each, like we, we paid us like $500 of salary, even though we had already raised more than a million. So that was just like in hindsight, not a great idea because everyone told us, oh, be frugal, be frugal. But I think we were like a little bit too frugal. So that's one piece of advice. It's very specific to our situation. I think the other thing is just like in hindsight, uh, going into like a market where the regulation is like very unclear and you have like very strong entrenched interests paying a lot of money to avoid the new status quo. It's it, it, if it works, it works. But the problem is you can't really influence it as much. And then also, since we were not US citizens, but foreigners, we also had like to be a bit a little more careful with like breaking some rules that we might have broken back at home in Germany, but we definitely didn't want to break in the US. But also, like there's literally people that worked in our space before that um, got like some very hefty fines because they were breaking some rules. And some of them, we think, had like very good intentions. Some of them were actually committing fraud. And I think we talked about that um, at some point. But there were some very funny stories <laughs> in the space where one of our former um, customers um, like school customers, like we found out that they were doing some shady things with their students. So we basically ended their agreement, like the relationship we had with them. And then a couple of months afterwards, we um, heard that they were actually being sued by 17 different state regulators. And then they sued us because they said we didn't have the right to end the agreement, even though we had, and we also won the lawsuit. But basically, like that person was then like, sentenced to, to prison, but he fled the country before before he, he, he went to prison. So basically, I have, I have some good some good stories that you can tell in the bar now just from like what we've experienced in the last one or two years. But at the same time, what we want to do is build a business, right? We really like building products. We like building relationships. So I think I would pick a space that that is possible. And I think we found one now with fashion where like the dev tooling space and the low code space is just overall a more wholesome, long-term oriented space compared to the, the space that we were in before. Because we are very much in favor of being honest, being truthful, and just making sure that you win by building a better product. I love it. So Mike, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? So Twitter works. It's just my, my name, Mike Malko, on Twitter. I, I assume it will be in the description. Um, LinkedIn, LinkedIn works as well. If you add me on LinkedIn, like add a quick message because as you know, you get a lot of spam there, but you can DM me on Twitter. You can, uh, reach out on LinkedIn. 
And uh, I'm, I'm very happy to help if I can. If any one of you is interested in like some kind of low-code backend solution, like, definitely reach out. But also if I, uh, if I can be helpful in any other ways. Um, I'm very, very happy to chat with almost anyone if the schedule allows it and see how I can add value. Because so many people have helped me in my journey over the years. So I like to pay it forward to other people. Amazing. Well, hey, Mike, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.